0: how investors are taking over the American dream. The housing crisis
1: does exist. We need to face it. Once you start
2: changing the dynamics in terms of where people get to live, it has an impact.
1: There is absolutely no benefit that these companies provide. We're not dealing with reasonable people. We're dealing with people that only care about money.
0: Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein,
3: And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We release new episodes every Wednesday and Friday and special episodes to bring you breaking news and special AJC investigations like the one we're bringing you today. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss
0: an episode. As Patricia said, this is a special Sunday edition focusing on the AJC's latest invest Investigation, the American Dream for Rent. A team of journalists spent seven months digging into an investment trend that allows private equity firms to elbow individual buyers out of the housing market. We're joined by one of these reporters, Brian Eason. In this episode, he'll explain what's caused the single family home rental industry to grow so quickly, how out-of-state landlords trap renters in bad situations, and we'll look at its disproportionate effect on neighborhoods of color. This first part of our series is out now. Part two comes out on Thursday, and you can find all of our coverage at AJC.com slash American Dream. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
1: Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop.
0: 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now.
1: The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.
0: And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and we're bringing in Brian Eason, a local government watchdog reporter who has been the lead reporter on this investigation, along with a team of AJC editors, reporters, data analysts. I mean, the amount of effort that put this together is just awe-inspiring, how many people worked on this project. Let's start off with this. You call Metro Atlanta the ground zero for the investor- Takeover of the American Dream. How has our region set the stage for this crisis?
2: I think there's a few a few reasons that, that Atlanta has really become, you know, what we refer to as as ground zero. And, and the biggest one is that the housing crisis hit Metro Atlanta really, really hard. Um, it was one of the hottest markets for for foreclosures uh coming out of the housing crisis um there was a lot of predatory lending here particularly in kind of the outer outer suburbs and another reason there's so much investor activity is that atlanta is just a really hot market in general today right like how many people do you know that are moving to atlanta how many job announcements do we have every other week of, of a new company that's moving to atlanta um so Atlanta is a really attractive, attractive market for, for people to live in, and that also makes it a very attractive market for investors who are looking to make money off of housing.
3: Now, Brian, when we talk about private investors, explain who that is. Is it just sort of a one-size-fits-all investor? We've also been reading about hedge funds getting involved. Who are we talking about when our readers are, are seeing what's going on here?
2: Right. So so here's here's who it's not. It, it's not your friend, Bob, who owns a couple of investment properties around the city, right? Um, we narrowed our focus only to companies that own more than, than 50 houses across the metro area. And the largest ones, we're talking, own thousands of houses. The vast majority of these companies got started with money from private equity. Some of them now today are publicly traded, but private equity was kind of the initial source for a lot of these companies. And and private equity gets their money from really two sources. It's it's really large institutional investors. So you might think of like a giant public pension fund, right? It's groups that can invest $100 million into something, not you or I investing $10,000 into something. And the other place they get their money from is, is debt. And what we've seen over the last 10 years is a very friendly environment for people who want to, for companies who want to borrow really, really large quantities of, of money.
3: And are these American investors, foreign investors? Do, do you have any sense of who exactly they are?
2: So most of the companies are based in the United States. One of the largest is is Tricon Residential, which is actually a Canadian company. But the majority of the companies are, are going to be based in the United States but where they get their money from uh, it's all over the world i would say the majority is domestic capital but there is a lot that comes in from overseas as well
0: now you you also wrote about how some of these are algorithm based basically software buy up homes before regular folks can even bid on them they're snapped up and then they're flipped sometimes within you know a short period
2: yeah exactly and that's that's one of the biggest reasons it is so hard for people to compete in this environment, right? Like even if you have even if you have a good realtor, buying a home is a really major life decision. You don't want to get a call from your realtor and have to put down your life savings after a 10-minute phone call. Investors that are buying in bulk it's not their life savings. One of the big advantages they have is it doesn't matter if they make a few mistakes, right? If you're buying a hundred houses and one of them turns out to be to be a dud, that's okay. You still got the ninety-nine. And if you're a company with billions in assets, you can write that off. You or I, if we buy a home that turns out to be a dud, like that's that's our life, yeah. right?
3: And another piece of the reporting, both in in this reporting, and you have also written about this previously when it comes to Atlanta housing prices, it has just driven Atlanta housing prices up so quickly. In some of your previous reporting, you wrote that in 2022, Atlanta home prices went up 25%, which is just hard to wrap your head around. But a big piece of it also is that these firms are paying in cash, and it seems like that is a hard thing to compete with because buyers love a cash sale? What does the cash piece of it do? And I know you've also spoken with some people involved in that.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, There's two problems when it comes to, to facing off against one of the investors. Number one is they just genuinely have way more money than anyone else. right? But the other problem is that they're always paying in cash. And what that means is if I'm a seller and someone wants to buy my house, but they need a mortgage that just takes longer to close. There's a lot of risk involved. What if the appraisal doesn't come through? Um, so that cash offer is really, really attractive to a seller. And so what realtors have seen all over the area is a house will go on the market. They'll immediately have 10, 20 offers and 19 of them will be, will be in cash. And a lot of times, you know, we, we've run into home buyers who the seller wanted to sell to a family. They didn't want to sell to an investor. They were like, hey, can you just give us $10,000 more? And so the family comes up with a little more money to put into the offer, a little mm. if you're a private equity firm, a lot for a middle-class family. And so they'll come back, they'll put in the higher offer, and again, cash just comes in over the top and and swamps them.
0: You talked to Sandy Johnson, who's a realtor based in South Cab. She says it's impossible for regular families to compete with these investment firms.
1: Because we have to finance, you know, we don't pay cash for our houses. We, we have to go out and find a lender who will work with us to buy a house. Wall Street investors don't have to do that. They come with cash. Homebuilders,
0: they point to conditions out of their hands for the city's troubled housing market. They talk about tight lending policies, zoning policies that dictate larger lot sizes, supply chain disruptions during the pandemic. Is there any sign that the region can keep up with the demand, that things are changing?
2: That's a really great question. Uh, you know, the state legislature has been looking into the the issue of housing affordability and, and how we can increase supply because, you know, the investment companies, uh, they'll tell you the same thing, right? There simply are not enough houses for the number of people who live in Atlanta and the number of people who are moving to Atlanta. So when we talk about affordability challenges, the thing to keep in mind is that the investors did not cause Atlanta to have a shortage of housing and to cause all of our housing prices to go up. What they did do is they added fuel to that fire and added yet even more buyers to a limited supply of housing that makes it harder for people to compete. As to your question – I don't see uh, an easy silver bullet to increasing supply. Uh, The state legislature is talking, on the one hand, about making it really hard for local governments to enact any type of local regulations on housing.
3: And let's talk a little bit about which communities we're talking about. Because a big piece of your reporting shows how just disproportionate the effect is in black and brown neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods, even in the same county.
2: Yeah. So some of this can be traced back to the housing crisis, right? We know that foreclosures affected African-American neighborhoods especially hard. One of the reasons for that, frankly, was that we had a lot of discriminatory lending. A lot of predatory loans were sold to black families in the Atlanta metro area. So uh, that's one reason that investors have bought a lot of homes in in African-American neighborhoods, but it's not the only reason at all. If you think about the business model. If you're a large investor who wants to buy a lot of houses and rent them out, right? Like, what do you want? You're typically going to go after homes that are a little, a little bit cheaper, right? That algorithm that we talked about earlier, that's saying you're going to go buy the house that's worth more to you than the market thinks it's worth, right? And we know that for generations, homes owned by African-Americans are worth less than their white counterparts due to discrimination in the assessment process.
0: Dan Immergluck is a professor of urban studies at Georgia State. He says black neighborhoods were very slow to recover from the housing crisis of 2008. So Atlanta was really the poster child, a poster child city for the foreclosure crisis. And it was heavily racialized with black communities suffering much more. And it took much longer for the home values to recover in black neighborhoods across the metro than it did in in white and more diverse neighborhoods. Brian, as Dan just mentioned, look, your investigation concluded that in some areas, including parts of DeKalb and Henry counties, it's hard to find neighborhoods where these types of institutional investors aren't deeply rooted. And many of these investors are buying up places with entry-level homes and communities of color. And it's just widening the racial wealth gap.
2: Yeah, so there's there's actually some really powerful research that uh, came from a Georgia Tech researcher uh, named Brian Ahn. And he looked at the effect that the rise in investor activity had had on home ownership across the Atlanta metro area. And what he found was that because... Of all the homes that investors were buying, it was actually linked to a decrease in the African-American home ownership rate across Atlanta. Now, obviously, home ownership rates fell across the board coming out of the Great Recession. But he found that in places with, with a lot more investor activity, the, the dip in home ownership was, was even greater. What are those places? Those places are African-American neighborhoods
3: and a lot of your reporting also got to the point that this there's significant concern that this is going to have long-term effects on especially black communities that there's a concern there will even be sort of a generational effect and you spoke with a community development director at the Atlanta Regional Commission and he says not being able to afford a home can have generational effects
2: it's essentially it's a ripple effect of one generation, that is not able to access these resources, then hence the next generation doesn't have access to the same resources or worse, and that just keeps following.
3: So when we're talking about long-term effects, if this is the situation now in Atlanta, first of all, do you think this is the new normal? And then what are the long-term effects on the city right now?
2: Yeah, so long-term, there's all kinds of effects, and I don't think we, we really... Understand all of them just yet, right? Um, what we do know is that home ownership. It's the number one source of middle class wealth. It just is. Not everyone can afford to buy a home. There's a reason we talk about home ownership as part of the American dream. It uh, it enables families to build up equity, send kids to college, you know, live in you know a stable neighborhood, good school district. All of those things that we associate with uh, you know family stability and success in America, right? And I think there's two concerns here, right? Many of the new subdivisions that are going up are specifically built to rent. Like they're not being offered for sale at all. So on the one hand, you're taking away people's ability to build that generational wealth, which will trickle down from generation to generation. And the other concern is what do our communities look like after decades and decades of corporate ownership? Uh, We already have dozens of examples of out-of-state landlords who aren't taking care of these properties that they've bought. I know local governments across the area are really concerned about, well, if that's a problem today, what happens 10 years from now when companies have bought thousands of more houses?
0: When we get back, we're going to have more from Brian about the impact this is having on communities and what local government officials can do to stem this trend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. The AJC has a special offer for our podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get six months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations like this one we're talking about today, food and dining, so much more. You'll get access to all of our stories on AJC.com, access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters, including The Morning Jolt. So join our community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. We're back with Brian Eason, our local government watchdog reporter who along with a team of journalists spent seven months delving into the project we're talking about today. Now look, this has a real effect on renters with disputes over maintenance and fees can lead to evictions. A lot of these investors, they don't respond to complaints. You guys talked to a local government official who said that they might as well write it off. It's just not going to get done. If folks can even track them down, simple requests can when you do find the institutional investors can often take weeks to fix. And you documented the story of one renter who simply wanted her air conditioner and mold problems fixed and wound up being dragged into court. Her name is Dele Lohman and she was renting from Vinebrook in Stonecrest. She also happens to be the chair of the DeKalb Elections Board and says there's plenty of ammunition for someone to go after these companies.
1: There is absolutely no benefit whatsoever That these companies provide to this community. And in fact, it is all detriment. And that should be their motivation to use all the tools available to them to hold them accountable. They do not pay business licensing fees because they have no business presence in this city.
0: Brian, this is no anomaly. I mean, you, you heard from dozens and dozens of renters who had similar tales
2: yeah, and what, what was really striking about what Daly told me is that I kept hearing the same type of story over and over again from renters from different companies. Something would go wrong with their house, whether it's an air conditioning in her case, uh, sewage, toilets not flushing, whatever the case may be, and – one little problem would just snowball into an absolute nightmare. Um, You know, in her case, she ended up having to move out into a hotel because the company wouldn't fix her AC for months. She spent thousands of dollars on a hotel. um, When the company still wouldn't fix the air conditioning, months later, she bought her own air conditioning units, tried to deduct it from her rent, which is allowed under Georgia law. And Vinebrook's response to that was to file an eviction against her. And again, we hear this over and over and over again from different renters who maybe it's a maintenance problem that starts it. Maybe it's a fee they disagree with. We have numerous renters complaining of clearly erroneous billing charges, they try to get someone on the phone with the company to solve their billing dispute. It might be $50, it might be $100, it might be 150 but when you have erroneous charges month after month, that adds up. At some point, you try to stop paying the fees, but if you stop paying the fees, guess what? You get hit with an eviction.
3: So what's it like to live in one of these neighborhoods is what we're talking about. Y'all spent a good bit of time with Florence Knight, and she's not only a realtor in Douglasville, but she also rents a home rented by an investment firm. So she's both a realtor and a renter. She explains here why she'll be getting out as soon as possible.
1: So I moved into this property June of 2020 and uh, the property I went rent from is Progress Residential. So when I first moved in, um, the main problem I was having was just a bunch of work orders. And when I say a bunch, uh, I believe my first seven days in the property, I had 13 work orders. I moved here in the middle of the summer, literally had no AC on my second floor. My first floor unit was working. Well, to them, it wasn't an emergency because we had a unit on the first floor and a bedroom to sleep in. So that's what we did until they came in and fixed it. Um, since then that air condition has now gone out two more times, um, all of my sinks were leaking almost, uh, my toilets were all running nonstop. Uh, my outside spigots were leaking. They leaked for over a year because you have a choice. You can either submit your work orders online or you can make a phone call. Um, when I first moved into the home, either way, I would get an email confirmation. Your work order has been submitted. We're going to get someone out but I guess after you have so many complaints, um, my email stopped. So when it comes to the fees, um, even the ones that you know are wrong and they should not have been assessed, you have no options. Um, You have an account set up with progress and you put money in that account and whether it's your rent or your gas bill or your fees, they just pull money from the account. So there's no option to have the opportunity to, to dispute the fee. And then if the dispute doesn't work out, then pay it. It's taken from you before you even get the chance to dispute it. So aside from the work orders, I can live with that, I promise. What I cannot live with is, so there are three organizations that we deal with in this neighborhood. Progress Residential, who's my landlord. Premier, who is a management company. And then we have our neighborhood board. Um, Premier has a process where The first notice they give you is just a friendly reminder. Hey, they give them to everyone. Don't forget your yard needs to be cut by Tuesday. Um, If the yard does not get cut, then you get a warning. Okay, this is your warning. If it doesn't get fixed now, you're going to get a fine. If you don't do it, then you get a fine. So what I have been told by Premier is they have never written me up. All they've ever given me is their friendly reminders because everyone in the neighborhood gets them. Unfortunately, with Progress Residential, whether it's a friendly reminder or warning or notice of fine, Progress finds you. I just can't stay in this home any longer. So our lease ends June of 24 and I will not be renewing that lease because I will not continue to allow my money to be taken unjustly. And not be able to get my issues resolved with either Progress or Premier Management or my neighborhood association. Um, So, this will be the last lease. Um, I I also have a sister who's looking for a rental. I will not let her rent from Progress Residential. I will not. That is unbelievable.
3: You just cannot imagine that this is legal in this world. And if it is legal, why are there no protections in place what can local governments be doing at this point
2: with local governments honestly the the biggest thing they can do is uh, use the tools that they have to hold bad actors accountable um in the case of daily loman you know what vinebrook was doing to her was illegal they cited them for two code violations under Georgia law, you can get 1000 a day in fines for code violations. The problems lasted for close to three months. It was something like $180,000 that this company potentially could have been fined by the local government of the city of Stonecrest. When they showed up for their hearing in October for an air conditioning unit that broke in the summer, they were hit with a $500 fine. Wow. $500 just doesn't mean anything to companies that have millions of dollars in investors behind them. And so one thing we, we've we heard a lot from, from experts, both at the local level and nationally, is the only way to really get their attention is to use what's known as a lien. You'll put a lien on the property for $1,000, $2,000, whatever the case may be. And investors really don't like that lien because it prevents them from being able to use that home as collateral.
0: Now, we talked about local official response, but let's talk about the state response. One element that stood out in your reporting is that state law blocks local governments from making it easier to find their landlords. In Georgia, cities can't require them to register rental properties and provide a point of contact. So one step that you outlined is just creating a registry
2: of landlords. Yeah, and I mean, some of this stuff feels really obvious when you're involved in a dispute with one of these companies, right? If Bob's Cake Shack down the street, right? If they have a fire code violation, what's the fire department going to do? They're going to go knock on Bob's door and they're going to say, hey, you need to fix this fire code violation. It's not hard for, for local governments to find people who live in the community. Um, the problem is with these out-of-state landlords – these LLCs change hands so frequently that a lot of times the registered agent that's on file isn't the right person. And Georgia's a very landlord-friendly state, and it has been for a long time. Local governments—they're not trying to inspect every single property. They're not trying to require them to get uh, all kinds of onerous things. They literally, in some cases, just want a person to call. When the AC goes out, when the heat's out in the winter, uh, when there's a problem with the roof that's creating a hazard for neighbors, right? These are things that need to be fixed quickly. But when you're chasing kind of this nameless LLC, it can take weeks. It can take months. In some cases, uh, we found that it's taken over a year for local governments to get somebody on the phone to address a problem.
3: I mean, the reason this reporting is so timely is that Greg and I are down reporting at State Capitol every day right now because the General Assembly is in session. And one phrase we've started to hear this year that we have not heard significantly before is the concept of workforce housing. Because there have been so many new, very, very large manufacturing plants uh, sort of wooed and uh, attracted and brought into Georgia, they're planning their plants right now. They're discussing what are what is the campus going to look like, what are they going to be building, et cetera, et cetera. However, along with those plants are going to be the need for immense amounts of housing because these plants and manufacturing facilities all over the state, you know, not just the not the just the mega plants that we've been hearing about, are going to need thousands of workers, and those thousands of workers are going to need places to live in areas that right now are essentially uninhabited. They're, they're going to need to stand up these kind of small cities all at once. And, and when we talk about workforce housing, that is a discussion of institutional building, institutional renting as well. And it feels to me like we're at the beginning of this process, not the end of really seeing very large renters in this space. In some cases, that makes sense. It's more efficient. In other cases, you're really talking about drastically changing the character of a neighborhood or a community or a county. And because we're seeing more and more of this, does it feel to you like where you could see a renting housing crisis in the same way that we saw an ownership housing crisis? Because there are LLCs that move quickly, because there's so much borrowed cash involved and because the US economy is a little bit wonky right now it do, it feels to me like something's unsustainable here.
2: Yeah, and you you one thing we heard from renters over and over and over again was I didn't have any choice. If you're a family with kids and you don't want to leave your school district, you have a limited area that you can look at, right? Well, if one company owns 20% of the houses in that area which we we have found you might not have any choice but to rent from this Wall Street backed landlord right and these landlords they the industry itself talks a lot about how they're providing affordable options for families right they're all about affordability it's more affordable than home ownership on the flip side of that for the vast majority of renters the price points of these houses are not affordable There's a congressional study looking at who actually lives in the homes owned by the five largest single-family rental companies in the United States. And the vast majority of those renters make median income or higher. So when we talk about workforce housing, there are an awful lot of workers below that income level that are going to really struggle uh, to afford these rents. Okay, Brian,
0: before we wrap up, I want to ask you, as you conducted the seven-month reporting project, what did you learn that surprised you the most?
2: I think the biggest thing was just that I keep coming back to just an in, in interview after interview with renters was just how how helpless they felt. Um, I had one person describe it to me as as extortion. Uh, another said they felt like they were in a hostage situation. Uh, I got a text earlier this week who, from a woman who won't even be in the stories about how she just felt trapped. And you know, there have been a lot of studies documenting how uh, these large landlords evict at much higher rates than mom and pop landlords. They evict at much higher rates than medium-sized landlords. And we typically think of eviction as being this problem of poverty. But with the way that these landlords operate here in Georgia, it's not a problem of poverty anymore. I mean, these are middle-class people who are, by and large, keeping up with their rent. They are in a decent financial situation. Anytime there's a hint of hard times, there is no forgiveness. And oftentimes they end up in eviction court for things that are completely out of their control and they don't have any other recourse to solve their problems, but to wait for that eviction filing to hit and go talk to a judge about it.
3: And it is almost impossible to rent a new home if you have been evicted out of your last home. So you just imagine the spiral that these people could be facing. And just to think of people's individual stories, just think about their lives. They are trying to raise their families in these homes. They are working, obviously. uh, So maybe they're working two jobs. And to be finding yourself that you are further and further away from home ownership in these rentals instead of getting closer and closer. It just really feels like a situation that can devastate a family, as you said in your reporting, just for a generation.
2: Absolutely. And many of these same companies that are filing the most evictions, they have a statement on their website, we will not rent to anyone with an eviction on their record.
3: That is just incredible. I want to just congratulate you and Zach Hansen for this unbelievable reporting. I think we all sensed that this was happening, but you have made it so vivid and you have brought these people's individual stories to the front. And I think our readers are going to be really transfixed by it, in some cases really heartbroken by it, reading people's stories and what they're going through. When they're just trying to do the right thing, but they're being really abused in many ways, it really makes me hope that our lawmakers are paying attention to this because there has to be a better way than this.
0: The project is called The American Dream for Rent. The first part of our series is out now. Part two comes out on Thursday find all of our coverage at AJC.com slash American Dream and truly impressive feat of journalism. Work of so many, including you, Brian, Zach Hansen, Mike Connell, Pete Corson, Emily Derico, John Perry, one of our editors, Sean McIntosh, and so many others within the AJC who worked so hard on this project. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC.